Well, if you have a Bible, get over to Second Chronicles, if you can find it. Second Chronicles chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 14. I will have most of the verses up on the screen this morning, but I will be reading some from Second Chronicles 7. So if you've got a Bible, get over there. A uh, couple of months ago, my kids had some friends over at the house, some neighbor kids, and uh, the, the kids got to talking about the different strategies that their parents use in order to encourage them to save money and not spend all of the money. And uh, as they talked, the other kids, these neighbor kids said, well, here's what our dad does. Our dad, if we put a certain amount of money in the bank or if we save a certain amount of money, he has promised to increase that money by 20% every month, right? So 20% interest compounded monthly. Now I was listening to this conversation and I thought, man, that's an excellent deal. Right? I, I do not have any investment that will pay me 20% compounded every month. If somebody promises you that, other than like your dad, you should be suspicious. Okay? If I gave you at that rate, you know, like 100 bucks, by the end of the year, it would be well over $1,400. Right? So an amazing investment. So as I listened to them, I thought, I wonder if I can get in on this. And so, uh, I sent my friend a message. I sent their dad a message and said, hey, I heard that at the bank, at your house, you are giving out 20% interest compounded monthly. I'd like to get in on that. And he informed me very clearly that that was not a deal that extended to me. It only extended to his children. And in fact, he told me, you know, it only was going to extend to his children for a very short period of time because the oldest child had already figured out what a good deal this was. And he was deeply motivated to save money and it was costing him a lot of money, right? So it was a limited offer to to a specific group of people for a specific time period. Now, now I was just giving him a hard time. Obviously, I knew that, that the offer didn't apply to me. But let's assume for a minute that I thought that it did, that I really thought that it did, and in fact, assume that I actually arranged my finances around the belief that it applied to me, right? So, so instead of investing in some retirement account or an IRA or whatever, I, I gathered up thousands of dollars for years on the belief that when I handed it over to him, he would pay me 20% interest per month in perpetuity. Well, I would waste time and money, wouldn't I? By believing that a promise that applied to one small group of people applied directly to me, I would waste my time, I would waste my money, and I might rearrange my life and the way I think about my finances in a way that was unhealthy, right? Now, the reason I share that is because the passage that we're going to examine this morning is a promise. And it was a promise that was made to a particular group of people at a particular time in history but it often gets extended by way of application to every group of people or every nation or all people 
who trust in God at all times, at every point in history, right? And so, so what we have a temptation to do is we, we take a promise that was given to a particular group of people and we expand it and we say, that promise is for me, right? And in doing that, I think often then we arrange the way we think about prayer, the way we think about God, the way we think about our country based on a promise that, that wasn't made to us. One of the hardest aspects of biblical interpretation, if you remember last week when when I introduced this series, one of the things I explained was, was a large part of why I'm doing this series is I want us to learn how to better interpret the Bible, right? Because proper application comes from proper interpretation. One of the hardest aspects of biblical interpretation is when we read passages, especially in the Old Testament, but it can happen in the New Testament as well. We read passages in the Old Testament and we say, is that promise, is that warning, is that word stated directly to me? Or is the application going to be much more indirect by way of what I learn about God's character and what I learn about who God is? And so one of the hardest aspects when we read the Bible is we want to be careful when we read passages, especially those passages that, that are promises, to say, is this for me in the United States in 2019, or was this for a particular group of people at a particular time? Now, I want to be clear. All of the Bible is the inerrant word of God. All of the Bible was given to us by God and is profitable to us today. But not every passage applies equally to us as every other passage in the Scripture. All right, so, so that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at this passage, 2 Chronicles 7.14. You all are familiar with the passage, even if you don't know the reference, you've no doubt heard the passage quoted. Here it is. Let me share the passage. And if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, we're going to look at, for a few minutes, how is this passage usually interpreted? Remember, I said each week we're going to look at how is the passage normally quoted and interpreted today? So I'm going to give us a few quotes. A couple of these quotes are kind of long, but I want to make the point of how this passage is used in 2019 and how it's been used in the history of American life for the last couple hundred years. So so let me share a couple of these quotes. This first one is from the former governor of the state of Mississippi. This was his uh, speech as he was stepping down from the governorship at the end of his term. Here's what he said. Mississippi has sought this elusive blessing as we struggled to become one state. Our people have endured the harshest of times and treatment and still achieved greatness. This greatness, we pray, will exist in our time and for all time for Mississippi. For as it was written long ago, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will heal heal their land. May this promise always be our guide and may God continue to bless Mississippi and the United States of America. Okay, so what is he saying? Mississippi is a great place, right? Now, I've been to Mississippi, debatable, right? But, but they say, okay, <laughs> Mississippi is a, is a fantastic place. I happen to think Texas is a fantastic place. But he goes, look, if my people, right, the people of Mississippi, people of the United States will humble themselves, will pray, God will do what? Will make Mississippi 
a great place, will bless Mississippi. And, and, and the implication is Mississippi will be prominent, great, maybe have material prosperity, maybe spiritual vitality, right? God has made a promise to the people of Mississippi and the people of the United States of America. Let me give you another one. This is Louis Farrakhan from a few years ago at the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. But we've had enough now. This is why you're in Washington today. We've had enough. We've had enough distress, enough affliction. We are ready to bow down now. If my people, who are called by my name, would just humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Now, what's interesting is Louis Farrakhan is not a Christian. He doesn't claim to be a Christian. He's not Jewish. He's a member of the nation of Islam, right? But he takes this passage and he says, this passage applies to the racial divides that divide our nation today. So if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, God will bring reconciliation and healing to our country right? There will be peace. Let me give you one more because it's not just politicians that use these passages. This is actually from a pastor. Uh, His name is Robert Jeffress, a Baptist pastor in Dallas. He says, for the first 160 years of our nation's history, every school child who went to school heard about God. They memorized his laws. The New England Primer was a textbook used in many, if not most, schools in this country. And that New England primer had verses from Scripture about God that every student had to memorize in order to pass. About 60 years ago, we allowed the liberals, the secularists in this country, to engage in a social experiment. And the experiment was this. Let's expunge any mention of God from the public square, from the schools, from the government. Let's stop prayer. Let's stop Bible reading. Let's remove all of those things and see if we can still have a good society, a moral society without God. Well, guess what? No nation can reject God and be blessed by God. What is the cure for what is happening in the nation right now? It's the same solution that God gave more than 3,000 years ago to his people when he said in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their iniquities, and then I will heal their land. Okay, so what is he saying? Well, when a decision was made to say, we're going to take state-sponsored prayer out of the schools and out of the public square, The United States moved in a direction that was opposed to God so that the the, the problems that we see in the country, whether they're political problems or problems with crime or economic problems, those problems are traced back to that decision. And here's what he's saying. God made a promise, right? God made a promise that the cure for all those problems for the United States of America is to follow this promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14. Right? So, So here's how the passage is usually understood then. How is the passage usually understood? Here's a summary. If the citizens of the United States will pray and ask God for forgiveness, then he will restore our nation to material prosperity and, I should say, and or spiritual health, right? And and often it's even framed in terms of not just the citizens of the United States, but the Christians in the United States. If we will pray, there will be revival, there will be prosperity, there will be strength, there will be healing for our land. We can go back to a time that was envisioned where we were strong and we were powerful and we were in sync with God. Okay, so that's, that's how 2 Chronicles 7.14 is typically used. Now, what I, what I want to talk about for a, a bit this morning is why do I think that understanding misses the mark? 
And then what does this passage say? And again, here's what I'm going to say. This passage has a lot to say to us about how we approach God. has a lot to say to us about prayer. But I don't think this is hitting the mark of what the passage says. So we're going to look for a little bit at why this understanding is wrong and then how we want to understand it. But before we go further, I want to make a couple of points before we go any further because this is going to be a lot of fun this morning, but I know I run the risk of offending everybody in the room. Okay, so let me, make a, let me make a couple of points before we go any further. We're not going to be discussing whether specific policies are good or bad. In other words, you may have opinions on whether there should be school prayer again or whether kids should memorize Bible verses in the public school. I have opinions on that. You will not hear them this morning because that's not what we're talking about. We're not going to talk about whether the policies are good or bad. That's not the point of the passage, nor is it the point of the sermon. All right, secondly, we'll not be discussing whether the United States is the best country in the world or not. Okay, now I love my country. I love the United States of America. This is where I I was born. This is where I have been raised. And we, we have maybe many different metrics by which we could say this is the best country or the middle country or the worst country or whatever it may be. That's not what we're going to talk about because this is important because in a little while, one of the things I'm going to say is that the United States does not have the same sort of relationship with God that the nation of Israel had with God. Right? And what I mean is the United States as a national political entity is not Israel. Now, hear me clearly. When I say that, I am not saying the United States is not great. I am saying that we need to look very specifically at this question. Here's what we will be discussing. Can we apply the promise of 2 Chronicles 7.14 to the United States in 2019? That's what we're talking about. Does that promise apply directly to the United States so that we say, look, if we pray, if we humble ourselves, if we put these inputs into the system, God will respond with the outputs that we so long for, which is spiritual vitality, economic prosperity, and health for our nation. Is that what 2 Chronicles 7.14 promises to us? That's what we're going to look at. So in light of that, let's talk through a little bit. Why is the usual interpretation missing the mark on this passage? Just a little bit. I'm going to give you a few reasons before I dive into what does the passage actually mean. The first one is this, and I mentioned it a second ago. The promise was given to the nation of Israel and not to the United States of America. Now, I'm going to talk about this a lot as we move forward, okay? Because, I, again, I want to be clear. This is, this is in the Bible. It's, it's part of the inerrant word of God. But it is part of a promise that was made to the nation of Israel. And in fact, it's in the context of a covenant that was given to the nation of Israel that was God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And God had made these covenants to them that go all the way back to Moses. And these covenants are being referenced in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And so here's what we have to be careful not to do. Not to take a promise that was made to one group of people and say, this belongs to me. Okay, so let me give you a couple of illustrations. I know that some of you in this room are doctors, right? You're physicians. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that you have a patient who comes in, and that patient says to you, hey, I have hives, right? So when I go out in the sun, I break out in hives. It's deeply uncomfortable. It's itchy. It hurts. What do I do? 
right? And you're a Christian doctor. You love Jesus. And so you say, you know what? I practice medicine in keeping with the Bible. So here's what you need to do, okay? You need to go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. It says it right there. It's a promise. And your patient says, man, that seems expensive and weird, right? Both of those things. You say, but look, it says it. It's a promise. Now, this is obviously an absurd illustration. Why? Well, that was a promise made to Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, by the prophet Elisha. Right? This is not a general promise that if anybody goes to wash in the Jordan River seven times, whatever skin disease they have will be healed. And we don't take it that way. Right, let me give you a couple others that, that begin to broaden the circle just a little bit. Leviticus chapter 26. If you will not listen to me, I will continue striking you, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. Now, I suppose you could use that as a parenting verse, right? You could say, <laughs> if you will not listen... I will let them loose. Okay. Or you could apply this to the United States. You could say, look, if we won't listen to God, we are going to have a day where lions and bears and tigers will roam the streets and eat us. Okay, but we don't do that. Why? Because this was a warning made to Israel in a specific context of the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. Verse 23, right after this, says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then what? I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase. Right? I read this and I thought, man, we have had a lot of, a lot of rain over the last several months. In fact, it has delayed our Creekside construction project more than we had hoped. And so I read this and I go, did I do something wrong? Because the rain is coming out of its season. Well, no. Why? Because the promise was made not to me, but to Israel at a particular time and a particular place. There were material and physical promises, actually, made to the nation of Israel in the context of God's covenant with them as a nation that were not made to us in the United States. Now, again... Bear with me, because we are going to talk about then, what do we do with these types of passages from the Old Testament? Do we just write them off and say they no longer are relevant? Just start your Bible reading plan in Matthew? That's not what we're going to say. Okay, but we, we have to be cautious about taking these types of promises and saying, it's mine. Okay, so the, the promise was given to Israel, not to the United States of America. Secondly, the quote is incomplete. Okay, so... Uh, Verse 14, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, is literally right in the middle of a sentence. Okay, now you may remember from last week, we talked about how the three most important principles of interpreting the Bible are context, context, and context, right? And we, we said, we're going to come back to that. The quote here is, is incomplete. Verse 14 is right in the middle of something else that, that God is saying to the nation of Israel. I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to start in verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 7. So if you've got your Bible, follow with me. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. 
If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, that is you Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. Okay, so, so the passage itself makes it very clear that this is uh, the context here, and again, we'll talk about this in a minute, is the dedication of Solomon's temple. Right, and God says to Solomon, look, this is the place, this temple is the place where Israel will worship, Israel will encounter me, and if I close the heavens off because of their sin, in other words, if the material blessings of the covenant do not come to you because you're sinful, it says, you come here, you come to the temple in this place, and you humble yourself, and you pray. And he says, I'll open up the heavens, and the locusts will go away, and I will act in keeping with the covenant I made to David. That is, David will always have the right to have a descendant on the throne of Israel. He says, Solomon, that's the reality of this place, of this temple, right? So the quote is incomplete. Here's, uh, again, I'm gonna, uh, there's more to come on this subject as far as what we want to do with this quote. But let me just say this. Anytime somebody quotes one verse that begins with something like and or if, always ask what came right before it and what comes right after it. And anytime somebody quotes one verse from a book of the Bible and says, this is what you should do, and here is the output you will receive, be cautious. All right, imagine that we were in the midst of an argument, you and I, right? You, you and I are in the middle of an argument, and I don't particularly like the way it's going. I feel that I'm losing or that your viewpoint is not correct, right? And so I say, look, I'm a pastor. I have some verses for you. Right, And so I pull this one out, Job 13. If only you would be altogether silent, for you that would be wisdom. Right? I say, look, that applies to you. And you say, wait, 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 wait. What comes before that? What comes after that? This is in the context of Job speaking to his friends who were giving him terrible advice about the character of God. And this is his poetic way of saying, shut up. You're wrong. Okay, but it's in context. So uh, when I posted on Facebook this week that I was preaching from this passage, uh, a friend of mine, a former student of ours from Grace, sent me this meme she had seen going around. It says, rise up, take courage, and do it. That's from Ezra 10.4. Right, and it was used as an inspirational meme. Right, but when you go to Ezra 10, what is the context Nobody probably knows. Okay, the context is that the, the, the people of Israel, the men of Israel, had married pagan foreign women. They had married non-Israelites. And Ezra comes along and he says, look, they're leading you down the path of idolatry, so you need to, you need to send them away. So rise up. Take courage. 
and send away your foreign wives and the children. Okay, this is not a passage about being courageous for your piano recital. But it was used that way because it was ripped out of its context and placed to say something that we want it to say, but not what it says. Okay, and that's what happens with 2 Chronicles 7, 14, all the time. It's an incomplete quote. Okay, and then, then the third reason that the usual interpretation doesn't hit the mark is, is this. Our prayers do not obligate God to give us what we want. Our prayers do not obligate God to give us what we want. See, what, what I fear with the typical interpretation of the passage is this. We say, man, if we just, if we just pray hard enough, if we're just good enough, if we get the right laws in place, we, if we go back to that place where people were praying in school, God has to bless us. God has to heal our land. It says it right there in black and white. What's interesting is even in the Old Testament, in relation to his covenant to Israel, God was always very careful to say, hey, when I bless you, I just want to remind you, I'm not doing it because you are good. In fact, you're really bad, right? It'll say that, you're unrighteous, you are wicked, but you know what? Because I'm gracious, I'm going to bless you. The law was given out of the grace of God. They were redeemed from Egypt, not because they were better than anybody else, but because God was gracious, right? And so he gives them the law, and here's, here's what the, the law does, is the law says, here's a set of boundaries for you, the people of Israel, as you live on the promised land, because what I want you to be is a testimony to the nations around you of who I am and what my character is like. So he says, if you choose not to be that, Israel, then you're going to have to leave the land. But if you choose to obey, he says, I'll bring you back to the land and I'll bless the land because I want people to see who I am. But see, the law was never given as a means to curry the favor of God so they could earn his approval or earn righteousness. Instead, it was given as a means for them to worship and reflect him in the land. And often when the verse is used in our current cultural context, the implication is, man, if I just put in the right inputs, God will give us the right outputs. God will bless if I pray. God will bless if I'm humble. God will bless if I repent. And so we end up inadvertently with a God who operates more like Santa Claus than the God of the Bible. I was listening not long ago to a a podcast, and there was an interview with a man who had been a, a Christian musician who now is an atheist. He had walked away from his faith in Christ, and so now he professes atheism. And uh, somebody in this interview asked him, why did you decide that God isn't real anymore? And he said, you know, here was the deal. I had these problems in my marriage, and I couldn't seem to get my marriage to work well. And he said, I spent all this time praying, 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 God, heal my marriage, make it better, fix my spouse, fix me, fix these problems. And I prayed and I just didn't see the movement that I expected or hoped or wanted. And I thought, nobody's listening. And so God must not be real. And so he walked away. Why? Because he believed in a God. That if you try hard enough, you pray hard enough, you work hard enough, 
He'll fix it. And it's a guarantee. Right? And when it didn't happen, he must not be there. Okay, and I think we run the risk of doing that when we utilize passages like 2 Chronicles 7 to say, if we do, then God will. Okay. Because that's not the way God operates. And so, so our prayers don't obligate God to give us what we want. You know, one other thought I had this week, I was reading the news and, and, and you know, Nigeria, the country of Nigeria, has a higher percentage of evangelical Christians than the United States. And yet more people live in extreme poverty in Nigeria than almost anywhere in the world. So, so, so I have to ask, is that because the Christians of the United States pray more, pray better than the Christians of Nigeria? Why is it that one country has material prosperity and another does not? Is it because we're better? Or is it because of the mysterious providence of God? And so we have to be cautious not to believe that our prayers obligate God to give us what we want. So then, what does the passage mean? Well, here's what it means in its original context, and then we'll walk through what it means for us. Under the law of Moses, the nation of Israel received material and spiritual blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Okay, now again, why? Not because God operates like a slot machine or, or a bubblegum machine, but instead because God wanted to bless this nation in this land at this time so all of the nations of the earth would come and see a people who were worshiping God. And that required him then to protect their land and to feed them and provide for them so they could live, so they could worship him. Right? Israel was constituted before God as both a national and a spiritual entity. There was a theocratic government. That was what it was intended to be. God ruling over the people on the land and the people worshiping God in the temple. Right? And so, so the context of the passage, as we mentioned, the context is the dedication of Solomon's temple. Right? This is, this is a, a big dedication where Solomon, the son of David, is building a temple where God will be worshipped and, and sacrifices will be given to God. And this is God's response to Solomon's prayer. That's the other part that's important to note, especially verses 26 to 31. I'm just going to read you a little bit of Solomon's prayer, starting in verse 26. L- listen to this. This is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. Here's what he says. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance." If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there's blight or mildew, if there's locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or all or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. So in Second Chronicles 7, God answers and he says, Okay, Solomon, 
I'm listening to the prayers of my people on the land in this place. If I shut up the heavens and there's no rain, and the nation of Israel returns, and they humble themselves and they pray, I'll heal their land. Okay, Solomon is referencing, by the way, the blessings and curses of the law that go back, in fact, to, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. I don't have time to read all of it this morning, but let me just briefly give you a little bit of the background. Deuteronomy 28, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. But if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with, with, with which I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. God says, you are a chosen people, a holy nation set in the middle of the nations of the earth to represent and reflect me. And he says, if you will do that, then I will bless you because then you can live in safety from your enemies. Then you will have food to eat and the land will work as it's supposed to work because God had made a unique promise with the nation of Israel to be his special representatives. And the nations were meant then to stream to Israel's light, to the light of God, and learn who he is. Now, now you know, of course, the history of Israel is they didn't, they didn't do it. right? They, they repeatedly disobeyed over and over and over. And they were kicked off the land and then they got to come back and then they were conquered again and at the time of Christ they were under oppression because the human heart was unable to obey and so they experienced the curses of the law but Solomon says God will you bless us if we follow the law and if we sin will you forgive us and God says, yeah, that's, that's what I've promised. Right, but when we get to the New Testament, see, here, here, here was the issue was they couldn't obey. So there had to be some other way. And all of the law, in fact, leads us to the point where as human beings who want to know God, we go, God, I can't. There's something in me, something called sin that thwarts my best efforts to do what you want. Right? So, so as much as Israel stro strove to get the blessings of God under the law, they, they couldn't get there. And so Paul would say, you know what the, the law did? The law led us to a point where we recognized we needed a Savior. And so Jesus, God's only Son, Jesus came and He fulfilled the law. What did Jesus do? Well, He fulfilled every portion of the law with his life. He never sinned. He never disobeyed it. He never did what was wrong. He was the only one that could fulfill this law. And then he died in our place for our failure to fulfill God's commands. And then he rose again. Right? And, and, and if you remember at the Last Supper, and we celebrate this when we celebrate communion, Jesus, as he, as he passed out the cup and the bread, he told the disciples, this, this is a new covenant in my blood. Right, that Jesus is the sacrifice of a new covenant, a covenant that does not operate like the law, but instead a covenant in which we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Because those who believe in Jesus have forgiveness of sin, and now the Spirit of God lives within us to teach us to obey. So we are no longer under that law of the Old Testament, right? That's why Hebrews chapter 8 says, when Jesus said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Under the law of Moses, there was a national community that represented God's interests on earth. Under the new covenant, there's a community bound by the Spirit of God to represent Jesus Christ and His Father and who He is. And so filled with the Spirit then, we are a nation of priests. But we are not a theocratic physical nation, at least not in the present day and age. So that when we look at passages like 2 Chronicles 7, 14, we can recognize the character of God and we can recognize certain ways in which God operates. We learn about who God is. But it's not a promise for the United States of America. It was a promise for Israel that tells us about the heart of God and His righteousness. But Jesus says, yeah, you can't do it. So out of the grace of God, He gives us life. Romans chapter 8, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus fulfilled the law, died for our sin, rose again, sent the spirit. So now we're no longer under the law of Moses, but under the law of the spirit. So we obey God through the power of the Spirit. And so we don't have these types of national promises. And that's, that's what's interesting, is as you look throughout the New Testament, the types of promises we see are things like 1 Timothy 3.12, that it says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? And so, so we see verses like that, and we go, man, that doesn't seem like a promise of economic prosperity and blessing. But what it does seem like, and remember Philippians 4.13, when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether I have a lot, whether I have a little, whether from the outside it seems like my life is blessed or not, I can trust God, I can represent God, I can obey God in a way, in fact, that Israel could not. Because the Spirit of God lives in me. So I can represent Him even in a nation and a world mired in darkness and evil because of the Spirit of God. So what, what do we learn then from this passage? What does this passage mean for us? Most of what we learn relates to the character of God. So let me go back to my illustration at the beginning about my friend who gave his kids 20% interest every month. Okay? That offer wasn't directly for me, right? but I might be able to draw some conclusions about my friend's character based on that offer, right? I might be able to learn that he's, he's generous, that he's a wise father who wants to teach his kids about saving. Maybe he's not great at math. Okay, but, but he's generous and he's kind and he loves his kids. So I can watch how he interacts with those kids and I can say, I know what kind of person you are, at least to some degree. That's what we see here when we look at God's interactions with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, right? Because we're dealing with the same God. 
back then and today? What do we learn? First of all, God is gracious, gracious, gracious. Israel turned away from him not once or twice, but over and over and over, and God keeps forgiving. And what we see in 2 Chronicles 7 is God saying, no, I will forgive you, not because you deserve it, not because you put the right inputs into the system, but because I'm a gracious God. All right, that's, that's the, the whole book of Hosea. If you've never read it, go read it sometime. And, and the whole parable of the book of Hosea is essentially, Israel, you are an unfaithful wife, but you have a God who keeps chasing you down and bringing you back. And so God is gracious, and we see that most powerfully expressed in the gospel, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not when we stopped being sinners, not when we prayed hard enough, not when we put the right inputs in. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First Timothy 1, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the message of the gospel. Not that if we try hard enough, God will bless us. But you can't do good enough. And so Jesus came to save sinners. And he died and he rose again. So God is gracious. Secondly, God does listen to our prayers. God does hear our prayers. And in fact, in the New Testament, there is an exhortation to pray for your leaders, to pray for your nation. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let me make this point. God hears our prayers. And don't walk away from here thinking, hey, Matt Morton said, don't pray for our country. That's not what I said. But instead, we go, why do I pray for my leaders? Why do I pray for the president? Why do I pray for our congressmen and women and our senators? Why do I pray for our courts? Why do I pray I don't pray because I want the United States necessarily to be economically prosperous more than some other place or have military might or return to a golden era. Here's why I pray, because I want the conditions to be ripe in this country for men and women to be able to hear Jesus and worship Jesus. And so Paul says, here's what you need to pray. Remember, Paul's in Rome where they've got a pretty ugly, mean emperor named Nero. I don't mean physically ugly, I mean his heart. And he says, you know what? You pray for them. Why? Fundamentally, that that he'll leave you alone so that you can share the gospel. And also so he can know the gospel. Paul says, "We, we, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our nation. That people will hear about Jesus. God listens to our prayers. Thirdly, God God does reward humility. That God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. James 4, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. God listens to our prayers. God honors a humble heart. Because God wants to draw near to us, and and it's in our humility then that we're able to draw near to him when we're not resisting him. And so there are general principles that we will be closer to God 
and see God work in our lives in ways that we cannot even anticipate or expect when we approach Him with a heart of humility in prayer. But not a promise of putting in certain inputs to receive other outputs that we want. So what do we do as we close? Let me offer a few applications. Pray humbly for our world, for our nation, and God's people. Pray humbly. Say, God, I I want people to know Jesus. I want the church in this country and all over the world to be a kingdom of priests, a beacon for the gospel. I pray that our, our nation's leaders would be receptive to the good news of Jesus and open to allowing the church to continue to do the work of worship and sharing the gospel. Secondly, confess your sins to God and ask for grace. The scripture says if we confess our sins, God forgives. He's gracious. He's ready to forgive when we sin. And then thirdly, trust that God works in His way and in His timing. Not in our way. Not in our timing. We cannot manufacture some sort of revival. We cannot create some sort of conditions where when we do what is right, God will respond. But we trust. Say, God, whatever happens in my country, whatever happens in my life in terms of circumstances, I'll trust you and wait for you to move. And what we find is that God is deeply gracious even beyond our expectations and hopes. Just as he was with Israel, so he is with us. It's that grace we're going to close by singing about this morning. Kenny's going to come back up. The band's going to come back up. And we're going to sing about the grace of God. The grace of God that, that continued to provide forgiveness and renewal to the nation of Israel. And the same grace of God who gave his son to give us life when we deserved death. All right, the hymn we're going to sing is one that hopefully you're familiar with. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's the grace we see in Second Chronicles. That's the grace we see in Jesus Christ, just magnified into our hearts and into our churches. So let's close in worship.